part of Double P Media. DoublePmedia.com Spoiler alert, when this podcast talks about the books of his dark materials, it does so in the context of the most recent book. And when it talks about the television show on the BBC and HBO, it does so in the context of the most recent episode. You've been warned. The Dust. Welcome back to the Dust Podcast, dedicated to the television series on HBO and BBC One, His Dark Materials, as well as the book series, His Dark Materials, authored by Philip Pullman. My name is Double M. Double M! That's what you all are supposed to be saying. Matt Murdick, thanks for joining me today. I do not have Double H. Double H! That's Holly Hunt Pants on Twitter. You can find her at Hunt Pants on Twitter, so we just call her Double H, Holly Hunt Pants. We are here today to talk about the music of Season 1 and how it might apply to Season 2. So we're kind of giving you a little bit of a refresher of some themes that we heard in Season 1 that we might hear in Season 2, as well as a preview of some new music, possibly, from Mr. Lorne Balfe, the composer for this series. But before we get into all of that, got to do the podcast business up front first. We want your feedback. This podcast thrives on you telling us when we're wrong or cheering us on when you think we're right. Tweet at the Dust Podcast. By the way, Holly's mostly running that show. I still make posts about when new episodes come out. But for the most part, you're dealing with Holly, so it's probably a much more pleasant Twitter experience. Uh, but at the Dust Podcast on Twitter, you can always send emails. I will answer those. That's dustpodcast at gmail.com. Dustpodcast at gmail.com. You can leave voicemails. Call 314-269-0421. You can find all of that podcast information at my website, mattsaudioblog.com. That includes app links for like our iTunes link or our Apple podcast link, other links. We really need you, if at all possible, to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're getting this podcast. That helps us stay your 40th favorite His Dark Material podcast out of about 20 active. If you know what I'm saying, we need your help. We need more reviews, especially with this new season coming up, so that we can be counted among the other numerous great podcasts covering this series that are out there. In addition to that, this podcast is part of the Double P family of podcasts. We need you to check them out as well. There's a new podcast on their doorstep that they will be covering the Star Wars, the Mandalorian series. That podcast is called Parsec Passion. You need to check that out if you can. Also, there may be an upcoming Joffrey of Podcasts. That was the first podcast that founded the Double P. Both of those podcasts are Bubba and Catfish, the people you're used to hearing more so than me on the Double P family. But they started the Joffrey of Podcasts, turned it into a hit, and then rode the coattails of that to create all of this other stuff where you're getting me. 
But the Joffrey podcast may soon be covering James Hibbard's book, Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, which takes a look at the Game of Thrones series from the actors and the writers and all those perspectives. James Hibbard did a lot of his entertainment weekly interviews with all of them, and he's compiled some of it into a book. And it's a pretty good read. I've read it. I may be joining the Joffrey Podcasts for that release when it comes out. How do you find out about all of this, Matt? Just shut up and tell us how to find out about it so that we can move on. Sure. Follow on Twitter or on Instagram at the word double, the letters PHQ. Go to Facebook.com slash the word double, the letters PHQ. If you're finding this video, then you already know you can find videos for any of the podcasts that are part of the Double P family by searching Double P Media on YouTube. Or here's a little cheat for you, youtube.com slash user slash fit and trim. That's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. That'll get you there. And Double P Media, the word double, the letter P, media.com is your one-stop shop for all things the Double P. I mentioned that our videos are going to be part of the Double P YouTube channel, which again, you can find by searching the word double, the letter P, media. And our last podcast, looking at the official HBO trailer, got some response. I want to say a thanks to John Goldsmith, Super John Goldsmith, that's Bubba, and Null Test Channel, Null Test Channel, for your comments on our latest YouTube presentation all of you saying that The Subtle Knife is your favorite book from the His Dark Materials book series. Um, that is the book that this season, this second series of His Dark Materials will be based upon. And that series is going to debut at slightly different times, depending on where you live. If you're in the UK, you're going to get it a whole week and a day earlier than people in the US. The UK premieres on November 8th of 2020 on BBC One and in the U.S. a week later, November 16th, the Monday, it will show up on HBO at 9 p.m. Eastern on the channel. I'm not sure what time it will be available on HBO Max, but that is when you'll be able to get it in the U.S., and because there's a difference in the times as to when this will be released, it concerned Holly and I because we didn't know if the majority of our listeners were UK listeners. I suppose we could look at some stats to tell us, but uh, why do that? We're lazy. Uh, at any rate, we did a kind of a very unscientific poll on Twitter, uh, and I'm still not sure if this is a true representation of our listeners but we asked when you would be watching the season two premiere. We wanted to do this to figure out when we were going to record our reactions and release our reactions to each episode. And it turns out that the majority of the people who responded to the poll, 57.1% of you who responded, said that you'll be watching it on the U.S. release date. We don't want to spoil our U.S. listeners. So we'll be releasing our podcast with our reactions, with musical analysis, with everything that you need to get you through the week on the night that it airs in the U.S. It will be available to you the next morning, wherever you get your podcasts. 
So you've got all the feedback information. You've got everything you need to know about the podcast, except this. There's another way that we're going to be taking your feedback this season. A long time ago, like 11 years ago, when I was covering Lost, and I was covering the music of Michael G. Kino then, we used to do something that we called call-in shows. We did them at TalkShoe. Now, I had a really popular one when I started one for Game of Thrones as well at Podcast Winterfell. But the only way that we can make these fan call-in shows successful is if you participate. So here's the deal. On Tuesdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time in the U.S., we want you to go to TalkShoe.com. That's talk like what we do and shoe like what we wear, TalkShoe.com. Once you're there, you hit the browse button and they'll give you a little search field. And in that field, just enter his dark materials. We should pop up as your first result in the search engine. But just in case there's more than one, be sure to look for us. We're called The Dust, a fan reaction show. It's going to be a pink logo, just like the one that's on our feed. You click on it. And then you'll get a list of dates that uh, you can call into, like November 17th, which will be right after the HBO premiere the next night, or the 24th after the premiere of episode two in the U.S. Look for that show ID number, because when you're going to be calling in, they're going to ask you for that when you call. And just to say it verbally, 168-5870, that is our show ID number. You're going to need that information. But if you don't want to write it down now, just make sure that when you go to TalkShoe.com that after you select us, you make sure that you know what that number is so you know what number to dial in. Now, when you click on the appropriate show date listed down underneath, then all of the call-in numbers that you can use are there for you to see and be able to dial. And we've got numbers for all over the world, everywhere from Germany to New Zealand to Australia, two of them in the U.S. Use whatever number is appropriate for you to use and call in again at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesdays. And here's what's going to happen. Everyone who calls in, you're going to get at least five minutes to talk with me. And it will probably almost always be me, but you will get five minutes to talk with me about the episode that aired the night before, meaning on HBO. And whatever subject about that episode that you want to talk about, we can talk about. Again, you get a guaranteed five minutes and it'll show up in our fan call in podcast, which we'll release later on that week. There is a couple of catches. If you manage to jump through all of the hoops to call in to talk to you, when you are talking to me, try to keep your conversations what I'll call HBO TV friendly, meaning that if you're getting the episodes on the UK schedule, make sure you don't mention the episode that you saw on Sunday night. Just stick to what we would have seen on the Monday night, just the most recent HBO episode. And if you don't mind, kind of keep your P's and Q's in check. We try to run like a mostly FCC 
styled kind of podcast, meaning that the George Carlin rules do apply. You do know about the seven words, right? I mean, I'm old, so I guess I'm dating myself, but Google it. George Carlin, seven words, and you'll know what words not to use on our podcast when you call in. But other than that, I would love to hear from you on Tuesdays. Please keep us in mind. Keep your schedules open. Come and join in with us. Have some fun. Wow, everybody's left by now. But speaking of fun, if you're still here, one of the most enjoyable parts about watching this series for me has, of course, been hearing the wonderful film score composed by Lorne Balfe. You should follow him on Twitter. He's been a great friend of the podcast. He came on for an interview back in January. You should check that out. One of our back episodes, episode nine, I believe. The interview with Lauren Balfe. And he actually just answered questions that had came in from you, the listeners. Uh, questions submitted via Twitter. So he was really fun to have. Always has some cool stuff going on on his Twitter feed. Lately, he's actually having a, a bidding auction for a couple of items that include his Dark Materials merchandise that have been signed by a lot of the musicians who performed some of the score. And he's doing this uh, to help a hospice organization that he is associated with personally. So be sure, again, to check out Mr. Balf's feed at Lorne Balf. On Twitter. That's L O R N E B A L F E on Twitter. Something else fun that Lauren's been doing recently on Twitter, he sent out some hints about some possible new themes coming for season two of His Dark Materials. And that's what we're going to take a look at. And I'm going to do some speculation about which themes already established in season one that we might hear again in season two. And just as a disclaimer, all of the music that we're going to be talking about is, of course, composed and copyrighted by Lauren Balfe and is owned by him, HBO, BBC, Bad Wolf, and whoever else might have a share in the publishing rights for his stuff. And that's also a reason that I'm not going to be using any clips from the television series itself to demonstrate the music in this particular podcast. That way we can stay YouTube friendly. That way nobody makes any money off of Lauren Balfe's music except him because of ads or what have you. It's just me and a piano. So if you can take that, we're going to dive real deep into some of these themes. But before we do that, also, I want to review for our double L's. Double L's? Yes, that's loyal listeners. Some of the things that I look for in a good film score. And to me... Things that make a film score work, not just as an emotional supplement to what you're seeing or what you're hearing from the dialogue, but also as a narrative device. If you're new to the podcast, this little review here that I do of my music jargon is going to help you out a little bit uh, while I'm rambling wildly during the season two podcasts or series two podcasts. The big four elements of any film score for me are timbre, meaning the instruments that are used to play the piece, melody, and that includes the shape of the melody, that's the part that you can usually kind of hum or whatever, rhythm, meaning what kind of count the music has, 
or how many counts does the music have before it flips back over. And harmony, of course, is meaning how the notes in a piece that are not the melody work, how they affect you, what kind of color do they add. Now, the first one, of course, is timbre. For instance, if a flute plays a melody, then it might have a totally different feeling than if a trombone were to play that same melody. And this is because the waveforms of different instruments, if you were to look at them on a computer, they have different kinds of edges to them. They have different little bumps in them in different places. And by determining what kind of timbre to use, that can help to tell the narrative of what's going on on screen. Is the sound pleasant? Is it a little more uncomfortable? Is it a lot more uncomfortable? All of these things are part of timbre, just the sound of the instrument itself. And something else that can contribute to the sound of the instrument that kind of falls under the category of timbre is articulations. Is a note being played where lips are moving and it makes it more splattery? Or is it being played abruptly? Or is it held out long and smooth? All of these things help change the timbre of an instrument. So that's one. The second one is melody. And this is the part of the tune that you hear in your head most of the time. Um, some melodies are more memorable than others. If you want a theme song, then generally you want a pretty memorable melody, which I feel like Mr. Balf has achieved uh, last season. But it's something you find humming before or after the show, maybe. Uh, so I do like to look at how memorable the melody is. The other key to melody is what kind of shape does that melody have? And this is what I mean by that. Does the melody go higher from a lower to a higher register? Does it fall down from a higher register to a lower register? Or maybe it just settles to about the same place that it started. Another aspect of shape is, are there big jumps in the melody, big distances between notes? You're going to hear me use this term a lot this season, interval. And essentially what that means is the distance between two notes being played, either sequentially or simultaneously. You can have an interval when two notes are being played at the same time, you can have an interval when one note is following the other. But maybe, instead of a big jump, there are just little steps. They're kind of inching towards a goal. Or they're not able to go as far as the big jumps due to circumstances. Small intervals. And the shape can really help in terms of a musical narrative device. It can tell us if, so, if we're reaching for some goal higher up and not quite getting there, or if we do achieve it, or if we start at a certain place and we fall down, maybe something's going wrong. All of these things can be dictated by the melodic shape. Another thing that can be a narrative device is rhythm. This is my third thing. Rhythm is how we count 
or subdivide beats in music. And that has a little caveat to it as well called tempo. And tempo is the speed at which music is played. For instance, faster tunes, tunes played at a faster tempo, tend to have a little more excitement to them. So tempo and rhythm is what gets our heart rates up, helps to make the visuals more exciting, or it can make our heart rates slow down if the tempo is slower or if the rhythms are slower, slow down to help us contemplate or to feel more deeply. And as far as rhythm goes, this subdivision, think of it like pulses. And I can divide these pulses in multiple ways. For instance, if I have a one pulse per count, one, two, three, four, or I can add more excitement by dividing those pulses in half. One and two and three and four and... I know I sound like a robot, sorry. Or I can make it even more exciting if I divide the pulses by three. One and a two and a three and a four and a... And you can keep subdividing many times. That's how rhythm is derived. Now, tempo is the speed at which my pulses happen. So instead of just going one and a two and a three and a four and a, if I have a faster tempo, one and a two and a three and a four and a, or if I have a slower tempo, one and a two and a three and a four and a. Okay, robots speak over. There is one other aspect of rhythm that we should talk about, and that is meter. And that is the number of pulses we count before it feels like it turns back over and we're starting over. And as human beings, for some reason, we seem to like our meter, or at least we feel more comfortable about our meter when they are in symmetrical counts, like one, two, three, four, or one, two, one, two. And we can even tolerate the kind of bob that a three count has. We can still kind of move to that. One, two, three, one, two, three. That's a waltz, right? But there are other meters just besides those. There are meters that can jolt us because they don't quite seem to add up to us. They feel like they're either skipping or they're too long. If you have a, a say like a five, eight or a seven, eight, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two. It feels like the one is getting there too fast, right? Or with a seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, same result. What about a nine? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one, two, three, four. That one feels a little late. These are what we call mixed meter. And meter is an important aspect of rhythm as well because it affects how we count, how we keep the beat how we tap our foot. And as I said, we do like our beats to be more symmetrical. Well, it has a beat and I can dance to it. And that's that symmetrical sense of rhythm. The interesting thing is, is that as much as we like our rhythms to be symmetrical, it is our sense of harmony, at least as far as Western music is concerned. We tend to be disturbed by harmony that is symmetrical. And that brings me to our fourth review subject, harmony. 
my final review subject before we talk about the themes, I promise. Now, harmony is something that works with the melody or on its own that helps add color or feeling or enlightenment to music. I've heard stories, literally, of some directors that will ask a film composer to create something that feels more red or blue or maybe brighter or darker. And a composer has to try and achieve that goal, in many cases, through harmony. Harmony usually requires at least two different pitches in order for you to be able to achieve it. Sometimes it can be a single harmony note against a melody, but it's still the sum of two separate pitches or notes. And harmony can really contribute to the psychology or emotional aspect of a piece of music. A lot of times, harmony is built in what we call triads. It's a group of three notes. Sometimes we call these triads as well. In fact, I tend to call them this because it includes, no matter how many notes you have in the harmony, chords. And the interesting thing about harmony is, as I said before, the more asymmetry, non-symmetrical, that our chords are built on, the better that those chords make us feel emotionally. And that's exactly the opposite of the perceptions of rhythm. Now, you might ask, why am I using all of these terms like asymmetry and symmetry when I'm talking about music? They sound like math terms, right? And actually, music is a mathematical language. And the fact that it is, is not a new concept. If you've had a math or geometry class, then you may have heard of a particular theorem called the Pythagorean theorem. It's used to calculate things about triangles. Pythagoras, who was the author of this theorem, he was an ancient Greek and a philosopher and a mathematician. He also did some studies about how Music makes us feel back in his day. And his discoveries way back then is the basis for what we call psychoacoustics, the study of how different notes played sequentially or in tandem make us feel. And his findings give us a good basis for how composers use harmony to add to the narrative of what we're seeing on screen emotionally. For instance, if you have two people kissing and the composer wrote and performed these notes underneath it, I mean, your first tendency is probably to think, whoa, wait a minute. There's something not right about the fact that these two people are kissing, right? Because it feels disturbing. That can totally change your perception of what's happening on screen as opposed to if a composer chose to do something like this. Ah, now you're feeling like, yes, this couple is finally getting together, or yes, they are supposed to be together. This is, feels right. And that's the difference in what harmony can do. So what Pythagoras discovered during his studies centuries ago is that out of the 12 notes available to us in Western music, 
There's only 12 before you start repeating notes. When you have chords, remember those groups of notes stacked on top of each other, when they are spread out equally among the 12 notes, which ends up dividing them into either equal thirds or fourths or equal two halves or equal two twelfths, people tend to feel uncomfortable. The symmetry in harmony makes people feel uncomfortable. But if you make the difference across the 12 uneven, a three here and a four there, or one's part of a third, one's part of a fourth, then things get less tense for us. And all of this is the basis of psychoacoustics and what composers use to help add emotion to music, to make us feel things by what we're hearing. And that brings us back to these chords. And there are four major types of triads or chords. You can use either word. You can use neither of them. You don't have to use any of these words. I'm just trying to set a, a context for the way that I talk about music for series two. But there are four major types of chords that are generally used to make us feel things about what we are seeing when a composer is scoring those chords. And I can't emphasize enough that with music, there are always exceptions and there's always subjection. Some people don't feel things the same way that others do. But as far as the four major chord types go, the first one is, interestingly enough, called major. And it has an uneven stacking with the difference or intervals. Remember that word intervals that I used earlier? Uh, the distance between two notes. The first interval is four half steps. And the second interval is three half steps. And you don't have to worry about the intervals if you don't wish. Just know that four or three, when you put them side by side, they're not going to be symmetrical, right? And when they're not symmetrical, we feel more at ease or even happy when we hear major chords played. Now, for the second type of chord, minor chords, we actually reverse those numbers. There's a three first and then a four. And not surprisingly, because you've flipped the two of them, it kind of flips your emotion. It's still not a disturbing emotion, but it puts it in a different direction. Minor chords have the opposite effect of major chords. They make us feel sad or maybe even a little scared. So in both of those cases, the numbers are not symmetrical. And those are the easier emotions in terms of comfort for us to swallow. And then we get into chords that are based on numbers that are symmetrical. That's when we start to feel uncomfortable. For instance, if I stack a four on top of a four, then across the 12 possible notes, we have evenly divided the 12 possible notes into three equal thirds. And the result of that, stacking four on top of four, is called an augmented chord. And this chord tends to feel just off, weird, maybe even otherworldly. And the final chord, that if we just stack threes, now we've got 
12 notes divided into four equal distances of three. That's when we get the most tension. This chord actually desperately feels like it needs to change to go somewhere in order to make us feel better. If a chord does change to another one to make us feel better, that's what we call a resolution. So this chord that I'm about to play is one that always feels like it needs to resolve. Unless, you know, the composer just wants to continue to torture us. If the composer intentionally wants us to feel uncomfortable for long periods of time, then we might get a suspended, what we call a diminished chord. And that's the four chords most frequently used and the feelings that they generally are intended to generate within us. Again, what makes music art is subjectivity. And while there's a lot of rules in music, most of those rules are made to be broken. But as a general concept, that's the way music affects us when we're hearing it underneath our television show. And hey, that's the end of my music-slash-math analysis. So, on to the part that you've been waiting for, uh, for, what, 40 minutes nearly now? Sorry, I tend to take a long time to get there, but hopefully this will be worth it for you. One last definition, let's define a theme, because we're going to be looking at themes that we've already heard, and we're going to preview a theme that Lauren Balf put out there on Twitter. But a theme is a piece of music or a melody that occurs repetitively over a period of time. Maybe in two different scenes in the same episode, but not anywhere else in the series, a theme can be assigned to just a single episode. However, many of the times in television, themes appear in more than one episode, and that's because it is usually tied to either a character or a story concept. And so whenever that character or that story concept has something happen to them, or the story concept is looming, then we get a piece of music associated with those things. And Mr. Balf has actually taken both approaches in his scoring of many television shows and films that he's worked on. Some TV shows only have about two or three themes, actually, that just kind of get repeated throughout a season verbatim. But what I like about good film scoring, something that Mr. Balf does, is they will take themes and they will tailor them to fit a moment where it's applying to that theme or what that theme is supposed to represent. And when we tailor those themes, we call those variations. And variations might just be small changes in the melody or in the harmony or maybe in the tempo or the rhythm or the timbre just so that it can fit the scene appropriately. But the first theme that we're going to look at is, of course, the main theme. Because, you know, I'm Captain Obvious here. We naturally hear this near the beginning of every episode. But actually, that theme music has been used in scenes within the show itself as well. One of the cases is, for the main theme, there is something that we call a B section or a bridge in it. And that music was the music that came in when Lyra and Roger took off in the balloon with Lee and York as they were leaving Ballvanger. 
So I'm going to play the theme, but I'm betting you're already going to recognize it. Now, as far as season two goes, I've no indication from anyone that a new theme has been written uh, that will become a main theme. So, yeah, again, Captain Obvious here. We're probably going to hear this theme in the season two openings. Will we get a variation of that arrangement? Something to kind of update it for series two? Maybe, but it's essentially going to be the same thing no matter what. It's just simply too iconic at this point. So there's my keen insight into the obvious. Now let's look at our main character, Lyra. There's actually a couple of different themes associated with her or with her destiny or sometimes very emotional things about her or happening around her. And we heard a good statement of it in the first episode when Azrael left her to go back to the north. And then he shouted to Roger, you know, everyone's special. And we heard this theme a lot throughout the season, actually. Another really emotional moment was her calling out to Mrs. Coulter as the intercision was about to happen. You got that same music there. This is what I'm talking about. Given the weight of this theme, I'd have to imagine that it will be used again in season two because it just seems like it goes with Lyra so well with her destiny, with her emotion. And we want to see Lyra go through some emotions, right? We don't want her just to be a robot killing things. And there's another reason why I think we're going to hear this throughout the whole series. When Mr. Balf was first composing music for this series... It got compiled into a recording that you can buy called the Musical Anthology Volume 1 for his Dark Materials. And this theme you can hear in the cut entitled Lyra, the Child of Prophecy. So it seems logical that if we're going to follow Lyra until she achieves some prophecy, that we're going to hear this theme. We may again hear different variations. We heard several different variations throughout season one. So will there be new twists to it in season two? Maybe. I don't know. Another theme that we associate with Lyra kind of represents the lighter side of Lyra. Like when she and Roger were racing through Jordan College in the first episode. Or when she was running to the front of the boat as they were going to the north in the beginning of episode four. Or maybe in one of the very few light moments in episode five, The Lost Boy, uh, when she was allowed to ride on the back of Yorick Berninson. That theme is a representation of her lighter side, her play side, her exploratory side, not heavy or burdened with emotion. This is the music I'm talking about. 
Again, this theme seems to represent more of the like having fun or explorer type nature of Lyra. So if you look at the trailers of season two, looks like Lyra is in a new place. So maybe this theme will be utilized again in season two. If she's having fun exploring this new place. I really love this theme, so I hope that we do get to hear it at least once this season. So that's a look at Lyra, but what about Mom? Her mother, Mrs. Coulter. Now, we have definitely seen her in the new trailers, and the interesting thing about a theme associated with her is that it's actually slick. I mean, just a change of a note or two in the harmony can give this theme all different kinds of emotional meanings. You can ask, is she being sly? Is she being evil? Is she just being human? It's a little two-note melody, and it lends itself to just so many different kinds of things. And that's just like with Mrs. Coulter, you never know what you're going to get. But here is that theme. And if I had to lay a bet down on whether this music would be in season two, I'm laying my money down yes. Maybe not a super heavy bet, but I would definitely bet money that we're going to hear some Mrs. Coulter music in this new season or series. There could be some variations that will happen if we need to get, you know, a new perspective on her position. But I'm still saying that there's no way they'll make it to a point where you wouldn't recognize it when you hear it, no matter what form you hear it in. And as long as we're on the kind of the dark side of things with Mrs. Coulter, let's shift over to Boreal. He had a theme as well in season one. And Mr. Balfour actually told us when we did our interview with him, again, that's episode nine, if you want to go back and listen, that this theme for Boreal was probably one of the more challenging pieces musically that he did. I'll tell you, it does definitely have a haunting sound to it. And that's just the first phrase. The thing just keeps on evolving and evolving. It's almost like this perpetual cycle of music. It just keeps going to a new place. So I can see why that would be very challenging to write. And I think it represents Boreal very well. Now, will we hear some versions of this in season two? Quite possibly. We know he's in the trailers. So, I mean, why not? The funny thing about this particular theme is that as complex as it is, there's not a whole lot of room for a tremendous amount of variation harmonically or melodically. But there's still some leeway in terms of tempo, maybe in rhythm, and definitely in timbre. We could definitely see some variation in that for season two, if need to be. We'll see. 
talked about the bad guys enough. Let's switch back over to the good guys. What about Lee Scoresby and Hester? He was all over the trailer, so we know we're going to see him. Will the theme that we associate with him make an appearance as well? It really made a splash in the fourth episode of series one because it has this kind of like Western vibe to it, doesn't it? Like that kind of melodic approach and with the guitar and all of that. Unfortunately, it won't sound as good on the piano here, but this is what I'm talking about. I can see the potential for a lot of variations with this theme for season two. I personally think that some changes in the timbre, the instruments, or even in the harmony, depending on, you know, where Lee's story is at as we go throughout the season. But I will admit that even if we just get it in this usual presentation um, that my piano did not do justice, I won't be unhappy at all. So again, we'll just have to see if there's any variations or not, or even if we'll hear the theme or not, but I hope and suspect that we will. We met Lee in episode four. We also met another character in episode four that got a theme. The one, the only, the King of Bears, Yorick Berninson. And the timbre has always been the big thing for me with Yorick's theme. I love the big brass sound. It sounds majestic. And again, the piano won't do it justice here in terms of timbre. But the harmony also kind of goes to unexpected places. And because of the horn sound, you think of fanfares. You think of things regarding majesty. He is the king of bears, after all. And the timbres make it exciting. So... Here is a poor substitute on the piano. Love those last two chords in that. I just love that little trick of, oh, we're out of key. Oh, wait, we're back in key again. Those kind of little tricks help excite you. And we have seen Yorick in a trailer or two, so we should be excited about that. I would only imagine that how much of the season that Yorick is actually in will dictate how much of this theme that we might hear. I would love for whenever the first time is that we see Yorick on screen, that this theme be the calling card the thing that announces his presence. Again, I'm just speculating. We'll have to see. And at this point, we've talked about themes that are mostly tied to characters. But there are a couple of little motives. By the way, a motive is like a theme snippet, just a little short phrase. Anyway, there's a couple of motives that are more representational of situations as opposed to characters. And maybe we'll hear 
this one that I'm about to play for you, or maybe Mr. Balfour will develop an entirely new one for this series. But the one that I'm going to play for you is the one that kind of represents a little bit of a threat in one way or another. And we first heard it in the premiere episode. I think it was supposed to be representing of the danger of the storm as that it was approaching Azrael and Stelmaria when they were on the mountain. And then we heard it a couple of other times in the season as well. One time in episode two that went along with Lyra searching through Mrs. Coulter's study, finding the stuff about the intercision, and she was walking back from where the kids were, coming back to the apartment. That's when we heard that little motive kick in. We heard it again in Balvanger, played much more slowly. Again, tempo as a variation. When Mrs. Coulter had arrived there at Balvanger, and Lyra was worried that Mrs. Coulter would discover that Lyra was there. Now, the interesting thing about the study version and the Ballvanger version is they used a different kind of accompaniment than the Azrael version. They used a different type of harmony. The latter two used Mrs. Coulter's harmony. They used the chords from her theme. But the motif itself stayed intact no matter what kind of music was playing underneath it. It was this. So in all those cases, there was some kind of danger involved for at least one of our characters. And so that makes it conceptual, not tied to a specific character at all. In the case of Lyra and Mrs. Coulter, in both of those cases, Mrs. Coulter was the threat, but the motive represented the threat itself, and Mrs. Coulter's chords playing underneath represented where the threat was coming from. We got no such indication as to where the threat was coming from with Azrael in the premiere episode, just the motive itself. At any rate, there's bound to be perils in this upcoming season for our characters, why follow our characters if they're not going to be facing dangers, right? But we're going to have to see if Mr. Balf thinks that uh, the threats and the dangers maybe need something different or additional to accent the danger to our characters. And speaking of different or new, a few days ago, Mr. Balf. Again, you can follow him at Lorne Balf on Twitter. That's L-O-R-N-E-B-A-L-F-E. He posted a photo of the melody of a theme that he had written on some manuscript paper. And he headed this up as a theme for the subtle knife, which, of course, is the title of the second book of the Philip Pullman series. And if you look at all of the trailers, we know we've heard a lot of talk about a knife in the trailers. We've even seen Will holding a knife. So I can't wait to see how this theme applies to some sort of subtle knife. But this is the way what he wrote down on paper, this theme will sound.
Now, there's some interesting things about this melody that we can observe, and then maybe even a few things that we can speculate about, but it would only be speculation. First off, an observation. I talked earlier in the podcast about melodic shape. This melody did have big jumps in it, both up and down. That always initially just adds excitement to a melody. Sometimes you can think of it representing instability as well. You know, if you think of a person who jumps around from subject to subject in a conversation very quickly, sometimes those jumps are a little startling to us. Same way with this melody for me. And right now I'm wondering if the knife, because of these jumps, might be as much of a danger to whoever uses it as a help. The other thing is, as I mentioned, the big jumps are in opposite directions. The first phrase has a jump that goes way down. But in the second phrase, there is a big jump up. And the jump up outmeasures in terms of intervals the jump down. So maybe the idea of using this knife might mean that it could go either way with an edge. I meant that as a pun possibly going to the good side since the jump up was slightly larger. But again, only a minute, slight edge. Pun once again intended. As for speculations, my first speculation goes to timbre. Really not so much even a speculation, just a question. What instruments are going to be used to play this new theme? I mean, if it's something with a more pure tone, a more pure timbre, like, say, a flute or woodwinds or some kind of sign-like wave, then that might be perceived as purity or for good. Or maybe if the sound's more dirty, like brass or hard-bowed strings, even, that might make it seem more menacing. And there's another important thing that we have to question And we'll only find out, once we hear the end result, what harmony will be applied to this melody. Or is there a possibility that there will be no harmony at all? That it'll just be a single melodic line with no other notes accompanying it? Now, within this melody, there are what we call accidentals as well. For instance, you can feel like that this piece is in a certain key. It has certain way with its shape, the way the place that it starts and the place that it ends kind of draws us to a certain tonal center. But the truth of the matter is, is that some of the notes in these, the accidentals, don't necessarily fit that overall key that the melody seems to be pulling us into. So what kind of harmony if harmony is used, can also say a lot of things about the melody itself. Harmony can be used to give us not just the intent of the person using the knife, but maybe some kind of intent embedded into the knife. Or if the melody just stands alone with no harmony, that makes it kind of ambiguous until the story reveals itself. So there's brilliant potential in this one. And if this is the knife that Will is holding in the trailers, 
I wonder if this theme could be used as a supplementary theme for Will himself. Or is it possible that he will get a separate theme from it, maybe even separate from the stuff used for Will in season one, because that seemed as much tied to his mother as it was tied to him. We're going to have to see if maybe something new develops for Will. And if we get a new theme for Will, you almost have to kind of suspect, since we've seen him in the trailers as well, that John Perry, Will's father, might need a theme of his own. What about those specters that we see in the trailer that Boreal mentions? There's a lot of potential for new themes that we just don't have answers for yet. What I can't wait for is for us to hear the new music that Lauren Balf has composed for us. And you folks in the UK will have it in just a week or so. And just two weeks for us here in the US. So that's going to be lots of fun. Now, there is one last subject to tackle regarding season two music. I saved this for last uh, because the one theme that I absolutely love yet suspect that we will not hear this season unless there's some kind of surprise reveal somewhere within the season. In none of the trailers have we seen any of the Egyptians. We've not seen Ma Costa. We've not seen John Fa. And we've seen a lot of Serafina, but there's been no sign of Fartacorum. So unfortunately, I feel like we're not going to hear this theme for the Egyptians this season. That was one of my favorites of last season. Again, one of my favorites. Uh, I'll miss not having that theme this season, but hey, maybe I'm wrong. We will have to see. And with that, we're going to be ending our music review and preview. Remember, if you have any questions about music, feel free to contact me. You can find me personally on Twitter at Musical Concepts, which is why I like to talk about music. That's why I chose that Twitter handle. If you want to tweet to the podcast at the dust podcast on Twitter, or you can send emails to dustpodcast at gmail.com. You can call 314-269-0421 and leave a voicemail. You can find all of this information at mattsaudioblog.com, including podcast app links. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're getting this podcast. If you can leave written reviews, that's what helps us the most. Uh, That's especially important at Apple Podcasts. It's especially important at like Stitcher. If you're getting us at either of those places, please leave us a written review. Also, don't forget that we are part of the Double P family of podcasts. Parsec Passion covering Star Wars The Mandalorian is coming up soon, like within a few days. Follow at the word double the letters PHQ on Twitter or on Instagram. Go hang out at the Facebook page, facebook.com slash the word double, the letters PHQ. If you found this video, you already know, but if you're listening to the podcast, 
You can find our video presentations on the Double P YouTube page. That's the word double, the letter P, media. Do a search that way on YouTube. Or a direct link, youtube.com slash user slash fit and trim, F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. And you can find all of that information as well at doublepmedia.com. That's the word double, the letter P, media.com. One last reminder to my fellow Americans, we may have to wait an extra week to get his dark materials from the rest of the world. However, we get to do something very special here in just a few days. We get to vote. We get to actively decide what kind of government we have. And I don't care how you vote, but good people in the past and even recently, have died so that you have not just the right, but also the privilege of voting. I'm going to put even more on you. It's not just your right and your privilege. It is your duty to vote, if you are able to, and if you are registered. Go back to the beginning of this podcast if you want information about that fan call-in show again. Thanks for joining me. We'll talk to you soon here on The Dust. Take care. Tweet at The Dust Podcast, email dustpodcast at gmail.com, and find all info at mattsaudioblog.com. Subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Part of Double P Media. Double P Media.com.